0: Hey, what's up everybody? Isaac here, Civil Engineering Academy. Thanks for giving us a listen and a review or a subscribe, whatever you do. We appreciate you jumping on and listening to our show. I'm excited today, bring on uh, Dr. Jennifer Ziegler with her PE as well. She's done a lot of schooling, earned her PhD. She's also the vice president of EWRI, which is the Environmental and Water Resources Institute of ASCE. Well accomplished, heavily involved in public policy as well, and I bring her on to talk about that. I wanted to find out her journey into civil engineering and talk about how we as civil engineers can get more involved in public policy and help shape the future of our country with policies and where dollars are spent as well. So it's a fascinating conversation. She has wonderful stories. And I loved hearing about her own journey into civil engineering. So that's all going to be coming up right after this. Can't wait till you check it out. We'll see you in a minute. Hey, what's up everybody? Hey, I wanted to jump on real quick and let you know about a free resource we've developed for you. You can find it at civilengineeringacademy.com slash PE guide and this will help you to jumpstart your studies for your PE exam. So if you're in the hunt and you're just thinking about the PE exam, this guide will help you get through the process of figuring out everything you need to do from the PE exams prerequisites that you got to figure out, the must-have materials that you're going to need for the exam, any approved calculators what groups you should join, exam secrets, and much more. It's all in this guide that we've got developed for you. It's completely free. You can go check it out at civilengineeringacademy.com slash PE guide. Just put in your email. We'll get you that information as soon as the email comes to your inbox. So go check it out, civilengineeringacademy.com slash PE guide. Hey, guys, if you haven't already, I want to let you know about our awesome newsletter. If you haven't signed up for the Civil Engineering Academy newsletter, seriously, what's wrong with you? I'm just kidding. Go check it out, though. You'll get all the latest episodes that we produce, blog articles, exams, discounts, course material. All this fun stuff is through our newsletter. So if you haven't signed up, go check it out. That's civilengineeringacademy.com newsletter. You'll be taken. Go sign up. And uh, you'll start getting our fun newsletters that we send out usually once a week. So go check it out, civilengineeringacademy.com slash newsletter and go sign up. All right, we are live and rolling. Jennifer, thank you for joining me on the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. I appreciate you doing this.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: What led you into that path?
1: So my dad is actually a construction engineer. Before that was a part of civil engineering and I've always been around engineering and civil engineering because while my dad is not a civil engineer, he is very close to being one. And so a lot of the the people that I interacted with as a child or a lot of the people that I interacted with even later in life with my dad and his job, they were civil engineers. It was really interesting to me and I, I was really interested in what they do. And I went back and forth. Actually, I almost majored in aerospace engineering and in fact, almost mm. got postgraduate degrees in aerospace engineering, but I decided that I actually wanted to be a civil engineer, very specifically dealing with water and environment, because that's a huge part of what we deal with and what we live with every day and impacting some of those and making some environmental decisions or environmental projects that can make things better was really interesting to me. In fact, I come from a very interesting family because my dad is a construction engineer My mom, she would now be considered a computer science major. So that was before, Mm -hmm. you know, in the 80s, before computer science was actually a thing. My younger sister is also a civil engineer, but she's uh, in traffic and transportation. And my husband is an aerospace engineer. And my younger sister's husband is a civil engineer. So I actually come from a family surrounded by engineers and a lot of civil engineers. And you can just imagine what our Thanksgiving tables hunt looks like. We've had multiple conversations. That's a nice word. I guess arguments or disagreements on things that are happening around the town that I grew up in, the positives and negatives and all this other stuff. So just a really boring background story. I grew up around it. It was really interesting to me. And that's kind of what I did.
0: That's amazing, though, that you have all of that around you. So it's also nice, too, because you probably have a good support group there. Probably when you were going through school or trying to take your exams, you could bounce stuff off of everyone around you. So that's nice.
1: I remember when I was taking my PE exam, my sister and I, we bounced materials back and forth because she's a year and a half younger than I am. So we took it around the same time. So we bounced materials back and forth and we shared a lot of study material And every time like one of us would come out from an exam, we would call each other and say, like, how do you think it went? And she would call and ask me water and environmental questions. I would call and ask her transportation questions. Like, I wasn't really sure how to do this. Uh, This is kind of like what I did. Is that logical? Does that make sense? It was quite nice to have somebody that I could bounce that off of, especially because, you know, we don't focus on the same type of civil engineering. We have two different specialties. And so having somebody that you trust, that you respect, that you could really like bounce some ideas and approaches off of, especially when studying was really great. It's really great.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really good advice for anybody taking the exam. You know, if you can find somebody that is in the same boat as you, that's very helpful. So that would be nice to have. My own brother, older brother, he also is a civil engineer, heavy into structural engineering. So I kind of did the same thing. I remember doing that, trying to bounce stuff off of my brother. So yeah, great tips there. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your education. Could you describe, I guess, your educational pathway? And I know you earned your PhD. What was the motivation to go from a master's to earning your PhD?
1: Yeah, so I can start with kind of the path that I took and then the boring story about my PhD, which is boring, just like my background story. (laughs) When I decided I was going to be going to civil engineering, I was looking around at different schools, and I got into a lot of really top schools, and I got a lot of scholarships. But my family had moved to Mississippi when I was younger, and my mom was pretty sick at the time when I was going to school. I went to a residential high school called the Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science, so you physically live on campus your 11th, 12th grade years. My older sister had just moved to Memphis. She's the only non-engineer in the family. She's in business. She runs a multimillion dollar, very successful business in the Memphis area. So she just moved to Memphis, which is about three hours away from where my parents live. My younger sister was moving out of the house at 16 to also go to the Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science. And when you're there, you can't actually leave campus. Like you can't just mm. be like, oh, mom needs some help or, you know, dad's out of town. So I need to go help out and spend the night at home. You can't do that when you go to MSMS. So I was looking around and trying to decide where I wanted to go. And Mississippi State has a really strong engineering program, civil engineering program. And I got a full ride to go to state. And so I decided to go there because it's really close to where my parents live. So with my older sister, three hours away, my younger sister, basically unavailable. I wanted to be close to my parents in case they needed any help. And thankfully, the school that's close to where my parents live has a stellar civil engineering program. So that's where I went to school and I got a degree in civil and environmental engineering and I focused on water resources. So all of my classes that I got to choose what to take, they were all water resources because I was very interested in fluid dynamics and fluids and water and all that other stuff. I actually have minors in leadership studies, mathematics, and political science as well. Because I've always kind of been interested in the crossover between civil engineering and public policy, most specifically mm-hmm. how public policy requires politics and policy tells us as civil engineers what we have to do with our in our jobs, right? What design storm we have to build, we have to design to, and you know, all these other things. Spoiler alert, there are not a lot of engineers. Civil engineers, electrical, mechanical—doesn't matter. There just aren't a lot of engineers that are in the policy space. So a lot of the people who are informing these decisions are people that don't have a background in engineering or science or mathematics. So I was always been interested in that. So I got a minor in political science when I was in school. When I was an undergrad, I met the man that I eventually married, and he was finishing his PhD in aerospace engineering at Mississippi State at the time. So there was going to be a year from when I finished my undergrad degree. And when he finished his PhD, that I was going to kind of have, and I didn't really know what to do. And I thought, well, I'll get a master's degree because you can get that in a year. And uh, my major advisor, Bill McAnally, if you're in the sedimentation or coastal field, you definitely know who Bill is. Bill McAnally said, "Well, you know, Jennifer, if you enroll as a PhD student, we pay you more, but you can just drop out after you get a master's degree." Hmm. And Bill, he knows me quite well, and uh, I think that was like his way of kind of like pushing me into a PhD program, knowing that I would do it. When I started my PhD program, I thought this is quite interesting. My husband finished his PhD; he went direct from his bachelor's to his PhD, and he finished it all in four years. And I thought, you know, I can do that faster because I'm a very, very competitive person. And so I wasn't going to get a master's degree. I was just going to go straight from a bachelor's to a PhD because you can do that in engineering. Bill was supportive. Everybody was happy. And then my first year of grad school, I actually applied for a pretty prestigious fellowship that would cover the research that I was interested in doing for my PhD dissertation. And every comment that I got back, was like, this is really interesting research, but you don't have any published papers. Where's everything from your master's Mm -hmm. program? I didn't get the fellowship and I didn't get the funding for my research because apparently it's not very common for engineering programs to allow you to skip your master's degree. There was another fellowship that I wanted to do, which was a policy fellowship. And I talked to multiple people that I knew that had received the fellowship that I respected. And they all said, Jennifer, you need to get a master's. You're going to have to just show a master's degree. And I said, okay, about two weeks before the deadline to even like to graduate, I was like, I'm going to get a master's and then just do it. That was like in September and the deadline was in like late October. And so my master's advisor, James Martin, so if you do anything with fresh water, you probably know James Martin's name. James Martin was really great. And I actually did a research on very quick research paper. I did a non-thesis master's degree so I could get it done in time because the application for the fellowship I wanted to do was in January. So I had to get a master's in December. You know, I did, I wrote a paper on law, policy, and sociology of sustainable freshwater use in the state of Mississippi which has nothing to do with my dissertation, except they're both kind of a policy-esque type thing. So that's actually how I got my master's. I wasn't going to get a master's until multiple people said, you should really get a master's if you want to apply for this fellowship. I got the fellowship and nice uh, job. I know I was excited. And so then about a year later, I finished my PhD and my PhD was in ecosystem-based management of coastal and marine areas in the Gulf of Mexico. So there's a lot of policy applications to that as well. So kind of a boring story. I'm just very competitive. I actually got a master's and a PhD in three and a half years. So I was right. I could beat my husband because he took four. He will never let me live it down. And then after that, when I started working, I really wanted to get more into the coastal realm because a lot of my PhD classes were coastal. That's what I'm really interested in. Coastal water, estuarine water. How things move. You know, it's just a really dynamic system. And I was told by some people that I really admire well, you know, your bachelor's, master's, and PhD, they're all in civil engineering. So you really kind of need a piece of paper that says coastal. While I was working full time at a consulting firm, I actually went to grad school part time and got a graduate certificate in coastal engineering from the University of New Orleans, fully online program. And that was you know, pre-COVID. And it was one of only like two in the country, I think, at the time that had a fully online program because I live about three hours, three and a half hours from the University of New Orleans. And um, I couldn't drive back and forth two or three times a week for class. That would be insane. But it's a really good program. They've got a lot of really great professors that do really high quality research and a lot of professors that also work at the Water Institute, which is pretty renowned for some of the research they do. UNO and LSU, so that's kind of just like how I got some of my degrees. Kind of boring, <laughs> well, but
0: I think it's fascinating because your resume is awesome. So I wanted to ask you about that. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Could you describe what you're doing today? Like you've got all this background now, this education, you've got it. While you, some yeah. you've been working some of it, but what are you doing today in terms of you know your career?
1: So today I. Do business development, which includes looking and seeing what people have out there that you can put, you know, what solicitations are available that you can respond to and responding to them. Working with clients to develop ways to address their needs. Like if they have flooding problems, let's talk about what are some steps we can get to and what are some projects we can get to address your needs. And then also working with congressionals, sometimes with specific requests for places that need funding. So I didn't work on this, but just as an example is the city of Jackson, Mississippi. I'm sure everybody's heard of the water problems that have happened in the city of Jackson. So really the only way that you can find a hundred plus million dollars to address the infrastructure concerns is really through congressional asks. I did not work on that, and I did not work on the congressional asks That's just an example of some of the ways that you can do some of that work. I also manage projects. So I'm a senior environmental project manager for Neil Schaefer, which is a regional, a mid-sized regional firm that's based in Jackson, Mississippi. I work in the headquarters. So I manage projects that are mostly stormwater and environmental projects. So environmental projects can be anything from like where you think dirty environmental, which is like a phase one, phase two, corrective action plan, that sort of thing, remediation. All the way to stream restoration. So I do, you know, stream restoration, coastal restoration, things like that. So our coastal and water groups kind of really overlap at Neil Schaefer. So we kind of do freshwater and salt water and brackish water all kind of at the same go. I do that. And then I also execute on projects. So recently, because a lot of the areas in Mississippi especially our coastal low-lying areas, they have a lot of problems with stormwater management, flooding from stormwater. I've really been recently been doing a lot of stormwater work. I've mm-hmm. kind of been de facto leading stormwater in, at Neil Schaefer since I got here. So identifying what projects we're working on, managing those projects, helping kind of usher the projects through. And soon we're going to start working on some additional training for stormwater projects and some other things because we just got some pretty big stormwater contracts that just came through. So we're gonna start working on development of skills and and professional skills in the company. So that's kind of what I do. It's a little bit all over the place, but I like (laughs) it. And
0: a favorite project that you've worked on within that? Something that's like, that one was memorable.
1: I do have a favorite project, but it is not a company I'm at now. It's the company that I was at before. I designed a one mile long boardwalk over an estuarine in our tidal zone on the coast of Mississippi. It doesn't seem like all that big of a deal, except, number one, it's the largest pier over vegetated marsh in the state. And number two, we use innovative construction methods and materials in order to get it through permitting in an efficient manner. And it also increases the resiliency of the final product. So, we went over submerged aquatic vegetation habitat. If you do anything in the coastal area, you know if there's SAV, your project is basically dead in the water, except we were able to use some innovative materials to allow light through so that it could be permitted through the core, Mm. which was really great. Instead of using wood as your surface material, we use a product called Throughflow, but there are other products out there. Basically, it's got Holes in it that allow water to come up, ADA compliant. It's, it's, you know, you're actually starting to see it more and more. And so while it lets light through, it also lets water up through it. And so when you have a storm surge, instead of pushing the boards out of place when your water is coming up, the water goes through the material. And so it reduces the upward impact and pressure. And so after a storm surge, it really helps with. It really helps that you don't have to replace the entire product. So we were about 90% through construction and got a direct hit from Hurricane Zeta when it came ashore, the project did. And we were very concerned that we were gonna have to redo some of the project. The construction crews went out a couple of days after Zeta when things had kind of receded and dried out. And they said, you're never gonna believe this. All we need is a uh, leaf blower to blow the dead vegetation off the pier so that it can be cleaned up and we can just keep right on with construction. Nothing that's had to be replaced. It was pretty great. So that's probably my favorite project. It actually won a um, Project of Merit award for something. I also like the fact that it came in like right at budget. It was built during the height of COVID. So oh, man. I'm pretty proud of the fact that it came <laughs> in right at budget because COVID prices were wild.
0: Yeah, they were wow. crazy. And lead times... <laughs> Well, that sounds like a unique project. Congratulations on that.
1: Thank you.
0: In addition to all this, you're also EWRI Vice President ASCE. Could you touch on that a little bit about what you do there? How did you get there, I guess? How did you become a vice president? How did that all work for you? And for civil engineers that are on the fence about joining ASCE, when the value for you in being part of ASCE as well?
1: Yeah, I can definitely touch on that interestingly, this all dates back to fellowship that I talked about that I wanted, that I applied for, and that I received. So I was a Dean Johnny Knauss Marine Policy Fellow, and I worked on Capitol Hill for U.S. Senator as a civil engineer, advising on energy, environment, um, water, things like that. And When I was there, I was the only civil engineer on Capitol Hill. There were a couple of others. There was an industrial, one electrical, two aerospace ones, but I was the only civil. And so I've been involved with ASE a little bit in college. But when I was on the Hill, I would get calls from ASE's DC office. So they have a lobbying group. And they would ask me things. We would talk about things. You know, we identify bills and language that was important to civil engineers and kind of work with them on that. And so I got a little bit involved in the public policy side of ASCE while I was on Capitol Hill. But because of some of the work that I did, I was selected in 2015 as a new face of civil engineering, Mm -hmm. which is an award that ASCE gives out. There are 10 professionals for I think it's people that are 30 and under. And there are 10 collegiate awards given out every year. And at that time, if you were named a new face of civil engineering, you would go to the ASCE Opal Awards. It's a huge civil engineering, like huge nerdy civil engineering awards show where you recognize projects and leaders in the civil engineering industry. But mm-hmm. as a new face, you're assigned a, a mentor. And my mentor happened to be Christina Swallow who is also very involved in the policy engineering overlap. She was an ASE fellow, policy fellow that worked on Capitol Hill. She used to run the Nevada Department of Transportation. Now she is doing something with sustainability and civil engineering in Arizona. So she was really involved in that. Well, a few years later, she was elected to be the ASE president. And when she's the president, whoever the president is, they actually get to a, a presidential appointee to the EWRI governing board. She chose me. So she said, I want you to represent me and represent the AFC, the society, to the Institute. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but okay, let's do it. And when I got there and I I actually served in that position for three years, I really grew to love the staff. I grew to love the things that we do as an institute, the value that we bring to our members, all the work that we're doing for sustainability and resiliency and water and drought and all these other things. I really started to love it. And so while I'd always been involved on the geographic side, because I live in Mississippi, I've been very involved in Mississippi, I started to become more involved on the technical side, which is where your institutes are, just simply through that appointment. And I served in different positions in ASE, EWRI, after I rolled off of the governing board. But I've had multiple people say, you're young, you have a lot of great ideas, you're in consulting, which is pretty unusual for somebody to be involved in EWRI. Would you ever consider running for vice president? And so eventually, my husband and I talked about it. My boss at the time and I talked about it. And we said, sure, why not? And so I ran last year and I was elected vice president, which is a actually a four year term because you are a vice president. And so I'll become president-elect in October. And then the October after that, I'll become president. And then the October after that, I'll become uh, past president. So it's a four year commitment, which I knew going into it. EWRI has fantastic staff, which is very, 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 very useful when you are serving in one of these roles because There's a lot of decisions that has to be made. There's a lot of day-to-day things that go on. There's a lot of things to oversee. We host multiple different conferences. We host an international congress. We have lots of things going on: policies, development of new technical literature, things like that. And so, having great staff is phenomenal. If we didn't have great staff, I would not have run for the position, (laughs) because I used to run the Mississippi section. I was the president of the Mississippi section, and we don't have staff, right? Because you know, we don't have a lot of money. Right. And so like I know how hard it is to run something to and not have staff. So we have staff and they're fantastic and they do the majority of cool. the work. And sometimes <laughs> I feel like I'm just there to like say what they tell me to say and wave at who I'm told to wave at. And we make a lot of decisions about where things go. The governing board does. So that's great. That was a very long story about how I got involved in EWI, but sorry about that.
0: <laughs> no, that's great to know. Well, I think it all ties into I kind of want to ask about public policy and such and how engineers can get more involved with that. But maybe um, just briefly touch on why an engineer would find value being part of ASCE from your vantage point.
1: Yeah, there's multiple reasons why I think that you would benefit, you as a civil engineer would benefit from being a member of ASCE. The first is the network that you build being involved in ASCE. So your local branches and sections will host events. You can go to them, you can get PDH hours, which is always fantastic as a licensed professional engineer, right? Because you need those to keep up with everything. So you can get those PDHs, but you also establish relationships with the professionals where you live. Even if you've been in the industry for a while, people come and go. And so establishing and maintaining those relationships is really, really key to being able to do your job, especially for me as a consultant because it helps me. Who am I going to partner with? Who are we going to compete against to? Things like that. Number two, if you get involved above the section level to the region or the Institute, then you start creating those relationships that are in places that are not where you are at, which is also fantastic. Two weeks ago, I got on a call with somebody that I didn't know. And he said, oh yeah, I invited Sam and Troy because they know you. They know me because of EWRI. They're in Texas. And we're not in the same section, right? Because they're in Texas, I'm in Mississippi, but we're in the Institute together and that's how we know the work. And we have built that trust because I know the type of work they do, they know the type of work I do. And it was easy to talk to people that you trust at another company. And then there's also online courses that you can take, certificates that you can earn through ASCE. So I talked about my coastal engineering certificate. Well, now ASCE actually has their own certificate program. So if you're interested in ports and harbors that have a port and harbor certificate that you can earn over about two years, that can help move your career forward. They've got study materials for the PE and the, the FE. I think they might have study materials for the structural exam, but don't hold me to that. I'm not a structural engineer. Mississippi doesn't have an SE license, so I don't know. And there's also a lot of possibility to interact with students and younger members who are coming into the profession. And it's always so rewarding to work with students and see them enter the profession and grow as well. And then ASE does provide a pretty substantial platform if you want to become involved in policy and advocacy. So they do provide that as well. To me, there's a lot of reasons that you should be involved in ASE It's really about career progression and finding ways that you can build your skills to move your career forward. Because uh-huh. a lot of young people, they don't have the ability in their companies or where they work to really build some of those leadership skills until later, ASE gives you that opportunity when you're younger. And that really helps with your career progression.
0: Great tips, great advice. If you're sitting on the fence, it sounds like a great place to be. I wanted to dive in maybe kind of as we conclude a little bit, but we talked a little bit about public policy and I'm really interested in getting your thoughts as to where those gaps are. Where can civil engineers do a better job of being involved with public policy What issues do you see that they can be a part of and help?
1: Basically everywhere. (laughs) To answer your question, what is the thing? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Something like that. The name of a movie. That's it, in my opinion. Every discipline in civil engineering is going to have different needs and they're going to have different gaps. You know, what we need in water resources is different than what somebody needs in transportation or structures. And so it's really gonna kind of look different for the different subgroups of civil engineering. But overall, you can kind of look at it like, we know that there are funding gaps in our infrastructure across the board, lobbying for infrastructure investment, continued infrastructure investment, right? IJA was a great shot in the arm, but it does not address decades of underinvestment in our nation's infrastructure. And it does not fill the gap either. Even with all the other funding mechanisms that have happened in the past couple of years, we still have a gap across every single discipline in civil engineering. Policies and rules and laws that we have to follow for design and implementation of what we're doing is extremely important, right? So yesterday I was at a a talk about Buy America, Build America, right, BABA, and how BABA is basically impacting everything that we do in civil engineering, very specifically in water, because you're looking at pumps and and lines and all these other things. Now you have to buy those materials from America, which is fine, except it's drastically increasing the price of projects, right? So when you come across things like BABA that say, now you have to do X, and we know the implications of doing X. Well, being involved in crafting that legislation and crafting those rules and those laws is extremely important, or at least making your voice known is extremely important because people that don't work in our industry, they don't understand how the decisions that they're making, that they're forcing us to do in our everyday work is impacting our ability to do our job or our ability to deliver sure, right. products on a budget or on a schedule, right? Bava is really impacting schedules, really, across the board. So thankfully, there's a stipulation in BABA. You know, there's different things. If it's going to cost more than X percent of what it would without BABA, then you can get waivers. And if it's going to drastically impact your timeline, you can get, you can get waivers. So there are some things that have been put into place that are going to help. But if people that don't understand the industry and don't understand how we deliver products are not involved in crafting that legislation or those rules, then it can really drastically impact what's happening and what we do every day. You know, another one that's coming down from on the water side is after the Sackett ruling. You know, Sackett versus U.S. EPA, the change of the definition of waters of the U.S. We're still waiting to see the guidance that's going to come out of EPA. That's going to drastically impact how we work as professionals and environmental engineers. And it's going to impact projects across the board. Hmm. So having people that experience this and deal with this is extremely important. AFCE and other professional organizations like NSPE and WTS, and you know, the list can go on and on. They all have arms that they lobby for specific policies and they are very active. When you get a new proposed rule that comes out, AFCE will sit down with their experts and they will say, okay, let's review the rule. And as the civil engineering profession or as the society, Let's respond to this and let's talk about what we support, what we don't support, what we would change. And it's really made a difference, actually. A lot of people don't see it because they're not involved on the policy side, but it's really made a difference. A lot of people get a little nervous when you start talking about being involved in policy and talking to your lawmakers and other things. If you're nervous about it, you know, you can do it on your local level or you can do it at your state level. There are a lot of states that have civil engineering drive-ins or fly-ins where you can go and you can tell your state representatives, this is what's important to us. So that is some of the states across the U.S. are trying to get rid of the requirement for licensure. And obviously, I think that... licensure kind of pull
0: is it all insurance. together with other licenses and you're like, well, right, someone that cuts hair is not the same.
1: So I think that it's important that we protect licensure and, you know, you can get involved with your local groups, writing letters, sending emails, talking to your state and local representatives that are going to vote on these issues in your state houses. There's lots of ways. Thankfully, ASDE actually has, if you're interested in policy or think you might be interested in policy, they have policy committees that deal with individual pieces, right? There's a transformation policy committee. I actually chair the energy environment and water policy committee for ASCE. There's different ones and um, you can be involved in that. You can just be involved in the ASCE fly-in that comes in and they have training. They actually have training where they say, you've never done this before. Let me tell you what we're asking for as the society. And let me tell you how to talk to your lawmakers. So they don't just say, okay, have a good talk. They actually train you on how to do that. And it's really, really, really important because the decisions that these people are making, the decisions that our lawmakers are making directly impact what we do every single day.
0: Yeah, I think those are great tips. You know, someone that's just working their daily job and in their cubicle as a civil engineer or whatnot, you know, how can they get involved? And it sounds like just getting training from ASCE and getting plugged in that way is an avenue for you to, to take part in more public policy. That's great advice. This has been fun. There's so much information here to unpack. Lots of different things, lots of different moving pieces. I know you're very busy, Jennifer, but um, I'm hoping that our listeners, you know, at the end of the day, have a desire to take part in public policy, take part in the resources that ASE has provided. And get their bachelor's degree in three years instead of three and a half.
1: No. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to do that.
0: It is very hard. I think I was probably double that. But <laughs> Jennifer, thank you for jumping on and sharing this. Uh, is there anything else you would like to share with our group or even a best contact if people had questions about anything we've talked about today?
1: Yeah. I'm always here. If people have questions, the best way to reach me is actually going to be through LinkedIn. So you can just search me through LinkedIn and you can find me and I happily respond to messages unless you're trying to sell me something, which point I don't respond or I slightly decline. So that's really the best way to reach me. So if you're interested in anything that I've talked about, or if you want to learn more about anything, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to you know answer any questions you have. The biggest thing that I would like to leave is civil engineering is hard and school is hard. Don't give up. Never, ever quit on a hard day. Never quit on a hard day. And you're stronger than you think you are. You can get through it. Trust me, you can get through it. Take your FE as early as you can. Take your PE as early as you can. Licensure is important. And I strongly support licensure. So if you are even on the fence about licensure, you don't have to stamp anything. You never have to stamp anything, but I think licensure is extremely important.
0: Totally agree. Great advice. Great tips. Jennifer, thank you for doing this. And we'll make sure we we'll link LinkedIn, your profile in our show notes. But thank you for okay. doing this. I hope you have a great weekend.
1: Thanks. I hope you have a great weekend too.
0: Hey, thanks again for listening to the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. Thanks for joining me today. If you want, please leave a review or a comment or a like. They definitely go a long way and share it with a friend because why not? It helps. Hey, if you're interested in becoming a guest, feel free to shoot me an email, Isaac at civilengineeringacademy.com. And if you know anyone or yourself personally, definitely check out our website, civilengineeringacademy.com, where we can help you on your journey to become a professional engineer, whether that's to help you pass your FE or your PE, or just get great career advice. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of this podcast and have an amazing outreach to other civil engineers, also shoot me an email and we'll be there to help you. Anyway, thanks for joining me today and we'll see you in the next one. Bye.